Thank you all for listening to another episode of Science Actually Presents the Nerd and the Scientist. We had a little technical difficulties during this recording, and Benjamin's voice goes quiet around the 10-minute mark for about a minute and a half, which I know you probably think is an improvement. We just thought we'd let you know. Anyway, enjoy the show. You are listening to a Science Actually production. It is often stated that of all the theories proposed in this century, the silliest is quantum theory. In reality, in this universe, the silliest thing is a podcast hosted by Kavi and Benjamin. So if you think quantum theory is silly, just listen to the show and you will see what silly really is. <laughs> it's, it's great. We're, we're talking about knowing people in Antarctica, and I think that might have been a confusing question for Marcus, because we have listeners on every continent except Antarctica. Yep. And Benjamin's like casually asking just as a joke and marcus is like well there's actually an experiment down there yeah well there's if the, multiple if the experiment can listen i'd love it sorry marcus there's uh there's also the south pole telescope uh which is one of the current next gen cmb experiments uh measuring smaller scales uh than you could do with Planck because that is a 10 year old satellite with probably 15 year old technology <laughs> So that's how oh, it is God. when you send stuff to space. <laughs> yeah. Man, space is cool. Say, it's kind of there. Yeah, Antarctica is genuinely cold. Because, <laughs> you know, the ice. Speaking of cool, uh, Benjamin, do you want to introduce our wonderful guest uh, that we have here with us today for our second guest episode of the Nerd and the Scientist presented by Science Actually? Uh, yeah. Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you for listening to The Nerd and the Scientist again, hopefully again. Uh, and for those of you brand new, welcome. Uh, we have a guest joining Kavi and myself, Marcus Mosbeck. Did I say it right? More or less. More or less. Marcus, more or less. And he is working on, he's a PhD working on cosmology and astroparticle physics. And he's going to try to explain those things to Kavi and I, pretending one of us is not an astrophysicist. So he's going to keep it simple for those of you who are like either Kavi or me, I'm not saying you. Well, Marcus actually um, knows that he has to speak to me uh, simply because so Marcus just uh, completed his PhD at the University of Sydney, uh, where oh. I'm based. So, so we're very well acquainted and he knows that I need small words generally to understand the, the incredibly complex things that he works on. So you're saying in the world of astrophysics, he outranks you? Do you know, have to I'm get him coffee say. and do his laundry? <laughs> no, see, in the world of astrophysics, if you outrank someone, you're the one buying the coffee. Yes. Oh, oh wow. That's kind of backwards. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so Marcus... Um, as I mentioned, you uh, finished your, your PhD uh, here in Australia, um, and now you have moved to Germany to work on a fascinating postdoc. So do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got there and, and what you're working on at the moment? So uh, right now, I'm uh, mainly involved in a project, an experiment called uh, DESI, uh, which... Uh, is one of these acronyms astronomers love so much, the Dark Energy <laughs> Spectroscopic Instrument. And uh, this, uh, well, the idea is to come up with something new uh, and uh, look out into space and look at it on very large scales and see what sort of statistics can we find if we look in many directions and we look with very far away and we measure spectroscopy very very accurately because uh well spectroscopy uh for those of you who are only medium astronomers uh is <laughs> if you measure how much light does it come at every single frequency uh from some source and if the universe is expanding uh which surprise it is then light gets redshifted and this means that as the light 
gets sent out as it travels through space and time. Uh, when space expands, the light's wavelengths get stretched out, and the uh, this because we have these wave laws, we makes it go to a different frequency. Uh, and so, if we have these uh, spectral lines that come from specific atoms, they like to emit at very specific frequencies or absorb at very specific frequencies. So if we can sort of recognize this pattern, but it is shifted to a completely different frequency, we can say, oh, this was either in principle sent by something that's moving far, fast away from us, or it's moving away sort of in quotation marks because space between us is expanding. And uh, one, so some of the most distant things we can see in the universe uh, are something called quasars, which are these supermassive black holes that have tons of stuff just generally falling into them. And this means that uh, they will emit a lot of energy because that's released by gravity and this gas getting heated up and tumbling around. And when this light, which is a very broad spectrum emitting at all different frequencies, travels through space, then it will hit clouds of hydrogen because 70% of everything out there is hydrogen. Uh, so, of course. Uh, and uh, if it hits a cloud of hydrogen, then aforementioned spectral line will absorb this broad spectrum, but only at these specific frequencies. So when we look at the light that's coming from a distant quasar, and we absorb this, we absorb the whole spectrum, then we can see all this, this forest of lines called the Lyman alpha forest, where the light has been intercepted and absorbed by by atomic hydrogen clouds in between us. And because this specific line appears in many different frequencies, we can tell exactly how, how far away from us these different clouds are. And so we can make statistics on very large scales uh, over large areas of sky. And we can also do it much further away and looking at objects that are not really that luminous because these are not stars. These are just cold gas clouds that uh, just exist out there and don't really emit much themselves. It's wild to me. I, I mean, like the, the whole thought of like quasars, you know, uh, which get their name from, from quasi-stellar objects, which, you know, were barely understood half a century ago. And, and now we've realized, as Marcus said, that these supermassive black holes that have a disk of of you know superheated um, material spinning around them at close to the speed of light, and and this whole system is contained within about the same size as our solar system, and yet we're seeing it from these uh, uh, cosmological distances. Um, it's really wild that the way that we're figuring that out is basically by like looking at the way that the light interacts with these just clumps of gas that happen to be everywhere in the universe because you know hydrogen is everywhere um i don't know benjamin i feel like you have you have many questions <laughs> i have a few questions i want one yes you in the back uh, well marcus you mentioned earlier that um when things are redshifted it's either because it's moving away or simply because the space between us and the object we're looking at is stretching because the universe yes. is expanding is are are those two ways of saying the same thing or are you able to tell the difference if it's moving so, as according uh, to this they are not two different ways of saying the same thing there are two different effects that compound uh there you go and well you can't necessarily tell the difference. So this leads to something we call redshift space distortions in that the actual redshift we see of an object is just the sum of the universe expanding and whichever velocity the object has towards us or away from us. And there is some distribution of random velocities that these objects have and maybe there's even 
sort of statistical average of velocities if they're all near some big attractive lumpy objects they all moving towards then that this is something we can learn from as well so actually in principle it could be seen as a nuisance but at the same time it is something we can do additional statistics on and extract extra information by taking into account these redshift space distortions very cool very this cool is that people who are much better at statistics uh, than me do <laughs> astrostatisticians right yeah something like that <laughs> that's a real name of a real field just a real thing. Yeah. Another cosmologist here at the University of Sydney, um, Garrett Lewis, I heard him mention that recently in, in a paper that he had put out also using quasars to, to measure how time slows down in the distant universe uh, because space is expanding. Um, and so that whole thing uh, also used a lot of astrostatisticians in the process. Yes. I think I think the other thing uh, that Marcus was saying that was really interesting was the fact that there is a whole forest of lines um, that you're seeing from the hydrogen. And, and I think we've mentioned this in previous episodes where I've kind of briefly touched on spectroscopy um, and Benjamin has kind of sat there going, uh-huh, I think that makes sense. Yep. Um, which is the fact that these, these lines, <laughs> the fact that, you know, we're seeing something coming from a very specific frequency or a very specific wavelength um, is because when uh, an electron in an atom um, is either energized by a photon and jumps up a level or uh, jumps down a level in the process, it loses energy. So it emits an electron, uh, emits a photon, I should say, rather. Um, those energy levels are very discrete. Those energy levels are, you know, specified. And so because of that, um, you'll end up with it happening at specific frequencies. Yeah, and so the funny thing about the Lyman Alpha Forest, as it's called, is that it's really only comes from one very specific hydrogen line, the so-called Lyman Alpha line. Mm -hmm. And uh, because this is such a powerful, like <clears throat> strongly coupled line that, and because it is occurring in neutral atomic hydrogen which there's a ton of then uh this is the one that will completely dominate the spectrum at these times and this is very cool the, the funny thing is not this is not even really what i'm working on uh, so. <laughs> oh my we've gotten sidetracked <laughs> already well what 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 are you what actually are you working, working on, on? Yeah. So the so the thing we were talking about is you can do some statistics based on how these lines how closely they are together. So you can use it to tell us how how do how does matter clump together, right? In that uh, we can see how close how big are these clouds of gas and how close do they clump together, and we can do statistics on this, and that tells us on large scales how does matter clump, and. Uh, so the question we can ask is, is why does matter clump? Um, matter clumps because it's heavy. Uh, and how do, why does it clump in exactly the way it does, forming galaxies, galaxy clusters, etc.? cetera? Uh, this is because we have something called dark matter. Uh, we can compute very precisely how the universe is supposed to clump in the early stages of its evolution. Uh, this is also what gives us the uh, spectrum of the cosmic microwave background, where the little lumps of different temperature tell us something about the scale of clustering at the time it was emitted, about uh, 370,000 years after the Big Bang. And, uh, well, it turns out that uh, back then the universe was very, very hot, and light and matter was, uh, light and normal matter was interacting very strongly. Uh, like in the sun, for instance, where 
uh, it's so hot that the gas is ionized and the electrons and photons interact and the photons can't move very far without scattering. And uh, this prevents uh, the matter from clumping together because the photons enact a pressure, like uh, if you have a pressure cooker or whatever, uh, it behaves as a very uh, high energy gas. But uh, it turns out that things are just too cl clumpy to have been formed only by this. So we have to introduce a type of matter that uh, does that does not care about the photons. It just clumps away uh, and just does gravity, uh, only gravity, all the time. Uh, and uh, reminds me of the Bobby movie. What do you do? I just do gravity. gravity. <laughs> and the the very neat thing about this is that it fits everything else we see. Also, like if we look at our galaxy, uh, it's rotating too much. Uh, not enough stars. Not enough gas. Well, if we add exactly the same amount of dark matter as we would expect from the cosmic migrant background, oh, we're rotating the amount we're supposed to. Uh, and if you look at big uh, galaxy clusters, uh, you can sort of measure how heavy they are by how much they bend the light of galaxies behind them uh, through a process called gravitational lensing. You can measure, oh, they're too heavy. Now we'll put in dark matter. It all fits. Uh, and uh, the neat thing about dark matter is it solves all these problems, but uh, the not-so-neat thing is, uh, what is it? <laughs> and, uh, and one of so the you things can't we can we... do... I'm sorry. So you can't no, detect no, dark ahead. matter directly, only indirectly, right? We well, just, we have it, not it detected solves... it directly yet. It just solves uh, the There's problem. also a lot of other people working on that, uh, not me. Wow. But there's sort of, we have a sort of three-pronged detection uh, approach to dark matter. Uh, we have what I would call direct detection, where you build a big detector on Earth, and you just hope that the dark matter goes in and says, bing, and you see something. Uh, and they have been very successful at setting limits on how strongly dark matter can interact. Uh, because as far as we know, uh, we have not had any beings. Okay. Uh, except one experiment in Italy that uh, disagrees with everyone else. <laughs> Ooh. And then we have what's normally called indirect detection, where... Now we assume some sort of particle physics model for dark matter, where we say, okay, maybe it doesn't couple to photons and so on like normal matter, but if we have a small coupling, then they should be able to annihilate or decay into something visible. So if we look at somewhere where there's supposed to be tons of dark matter, like in the center of the galaxy or in the center of globular clusters uh, or like dwarf galaxies or in the center of big uh, galaxy clusters, then we should expect to see some sort of gamma ray signal. Uh, and well, there's some hints that maybe there's something going on, but uh, it could also just be pulsars, right? Uh, this Classic is uh, one of the big discussions. Is it, is it dark matter or is it pulsars? Who knows? Uh, so also again, we don't have anything conclusive there. That's and awesome. The the third approach, which is mainly my thing, uh, well, the thing I mainly do is structure formation and early universe effects. In that, okay, we can say that the dark matter does not interact strongly enough with anything that we can see to uh, warrant us seeing any direct or indirect signal, but if it has, its particle properties will still affect how it behaves in the early universe uh, and how it behaves on large scales and so on. So we can act, we can see to an extent the type, we can maybe not necessarily say the precise particle model, but we can say sort of which type of particle model we should be looking for by looking at how does matter cluster. For instance, uh, 
if it interacts with uh, photons, so light, or other light particles such as neutrinos, or even normal matter like baryons, then it will remain coupled to them in the same way as baryons were coupled to photons in the early universe, up until some time when the universe has become cold and diluted enough that the dark matter does something we call decouple, which means it stops really caring and just evolves under gravity. And from the fact, and the later this happens, the more structure is suppressed, right? Uh, and this scale is sort of imprinted on all structure formation. And since we have not yet uh, observed this specific, any, conclusively, any specific suppression scale, but this is also one of the ways to set limits on what kind of dark matter interactions are allowed, just by saying, okay, if we see something, that's exciting. If we don't, if we don't see something, we can set limits on how strongly interacting dark matter can be. It's a fun aspect of science that you don't really think about when you think of a scientist. You're normally like, ah, oh, scientists make discovery and say Eureka. And like, that's kind of how people picture us. But the reality is, is that, you know, as cool as finding a result is, um, finding a, a null result or, or non-detection can really help you know, science as a whole moves forward in terms of limiting what the possibilities could be, because the possibilities are endless. Oh, yeah, <laughs> At least the models. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> uh, we would all love a discovery. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Definitely. So, <clears throat> speaking about your focusing on the early universe, legitimate question, but a fun one. What came first, black hole or the galaxy? So, well, that depends. A, are you speaking of <laughs> the black hole in our galaxy or black holes in general? Black holes in general or galaxies in general? See, uh, well, I think this is an open question. Uh, I think the, uh, the, the big question is uh, something that a lot of people are working on. It's very exciting at the moment is whether something called primordial black holes exists. So most black holes we talk about, uh, we assume that they come from, you know, you have a star, uh, it stops doing fusion in the core, so there's no more pressure from photons uh, keeping it from collapsing, just like how suddenly there was no more photon pressure keeping the baryons from collapsing and forming galaxies in the early universe. Uh, and because this is much smaller scales, suddenly the pressure is very, the gravitational pressure is very high. Thing, whole thing collapses, uh, becomes too dense to exist, and becomes a black hole essentially. Uh, and uh, this is the only way right now in the universe we can imagine to create a black hole. Uh, but in the early universe, uh, every all the over densities and under densities that galaxies and voids that exist today come from sort of initial random distribution of over densities and under densities. And in principle, some of these random over densities could be dense enough that they just start, form a black hole from the start. They don't need to have some sort of star evolve to suddenly no longer uh, have enough uh, pressure to keep from collapsing. If it's dense enough, it's just dense enough from the start because that's how it was originally. And in fact, this is one possible contender for what is dark matter because they uh, actually do all the things dark matter is supposed to do, right? Uh, they existed in the early universe. They don't really interact very much uh, outside of gravity because again, it's just a black hole. It's just a big heavy lump. And they are heavy enough. Like they, they, they don't go around super fast. They just do gravity so they can cluster and do what dark matter is supposed to do. Right. So again, we love uh, coming up with theories and then we can write a lot of papers killing those theories. Uh, <laughs> 
so there's a lot of uh, work going on right now, both to come up with new models of uh, actually forming these primordial black holes because it's a little bit tricky uh, to do it without messing up some other observable. Uh, but also there's a lot of uh, papers out there that say, okay, because we're not, not seeing this, uh, or because we are seeing this, then there can't be too many black holes of this size around. Uh, for instance, if you had enough heavy black holes floating around in galaxies, then they would disrupt uh, wide stellar binaries. Uh, if you have a wide binary of stars, then they're not that tightly gravitationally bound. Uh, they have very long orbits. Uh, so if a big heavy black hole decided to fly by, then the three-body interaction could easily disrupt the orbit and suddenly you have no more wide binaries. And because we see these wide binaries, we know this can't happen too often. Another example is LIGO, right? Uh, hot, exciting buzzword science, uh, gravitational waves, is that we can, we have a rough idea of how often these black hole mergers happen because we just turn on LIGO and wait and see how many we can see. And we have a rough idea of the range of LIGO. And then we assume we see all the ones in LIGO's range with about, or some fraction based on how efficient we think LIGO is. And uh, then we can count how many are those happening. And if there were too many of black holes formed of this mass in the early universe, then maybe we, then we would see a lot more mergers than we are. Again, this can put limits on how many of them can exist. How many black hole mergers has LIGO detected? I know, I thought it was like a, a rare thing to observe. I think it, we're in the order of a hundred. That sounds about right to me. Yeah. There's this uh, lovely picture where they add every merger uh, of this sort of this called this, the stellar graveyard, uh, where so the, it's quite rare for it to see neutron star mergers because they're not as heavy as black holes, uh, and so the signal is weaker. But uh, they have seen a few, and so this could in principle be one of the ways to confirm a primordial black holes because when you look out there and you see a black hole with some mass then in principle you don't know where it came from uh, but all the ones above a certain mass could plausibly come from a star and therefore probably came from a star if we're being honest uh, where a lot, but if we were to see a black hole less massive than a star, or less massive than I think is called the Trangisica mass, uh, uh, is that the black? Is that the white dwarf neutron star boundary? Uh, yeah, Chandrasekhar is the white dwarf uh, mass limit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but there's also mass limit for neutron stars, right? Uh, yeah, I can never remember uh, what it's called. <laughs> But yeah, so if you saw something below this mass, uh, then you could plausibly assume it didn't come from a star because these black holes come from very massive stars that uh, whose remains are too massive to form neutron stars. Right. So uh, if it if you have an actual black hole that is uh, smaller than this, then where else could it come from? If must have just been there all the way. <laughs> it's wild. I think we need to, I can see that Benjamin um, has a lot more questions to ask, but I think we're going to do a very quick ad break and then we will be back um, after the ad break uh, for us to talk more about dark matter, black holes, um, the universe. <laughs> Enter a realm where science meets fantasy. In this world, the world of dungeons and dark matter, you can explore the mysteries of the universe like never before. 
Dark matter, that elusive enigma shaping galaxies awaiting your discovery. Will you uncover its secrets or succumb to its power? Dive into a new tabletop adventure game where every decision shapes the fate of the cosmos. Dare to explore the unknown with dungeons and dark matter. Forge your path through dungeons and encounter otherworldly beings from around the cosmos, all while navigating the complexities of warm and interacting dark matter. Available now at your local game store. Begin your journey today. Dungeons and Dark Matter, where science and the imagination collide. <laughs> Benjamin's shaking his head. I liked it. That was a good one. <clears throat> it was a good one. I liked it. Nice to, nice to buy something you can't see. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Quite literally. Really cheap. <laughs> that works on double two levels. <laughs> oh, because it's fictitious, A, and because it's dark matter. Get it? It works both ways. You can't see it, but you can feel it. Wait a second. That means we can technically sell people dark matter stuff. They can't see it anyway. Yeah, so th this is actually... <laughs> This is actually one of the, the funnier uh, dark matter constraint papers out there, is that there was a paper a few years ago uh, called uh, Death and Serious Injury by Dark Matter, uh, where if you have dark matter particles of a certain relatively high mass, uh, so obviously not black hole-sized masses, but, you know, quite large for a particle, uh, then their kinetic energy would be such that if they had an uh, interaction with a human being, it would be kind of like getting a gunshot wound. And, That's uh, awesome. By, uh, by sort of look... So right, when you have dark matter detectors, what... The, the, the things you want are sort of exposure mass times time because uh, like what you want to see is whether you get an uh, interaction happening you have your dark matter wind that's passing through us all the time and uh, you have a larger probability of getting interaction with either you have a larger target to interact with or if you just let your target sit there for a longer time, right? Uh, so we measure it in ton years, usually. Uh, well, depending on the type of experiment, but that's what we're interested in. So either if you had a ton year, you could have something that's uh, one ton for one year, or you could have something that was uh, 100 kilograms for 10 years. Uh, and it turns out that if you just use your target is all humans, uh, that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of tons. Uh, and also, uh, if you just look back in time for unexplained deaths, uh, then you have a lot of time as well. That's no way. That's this a real thing, is it? No, this no. is this is real. A real thing, a, this, this, a, a genuine way to measure possibly dark matter is unexplained deaths throughout history. <laughs> this this that, reminds that me of that correlation. That, ooh, this this reminds me of that correlation that somebody found between um, the number of Tom Hanks movies that came out in the year and then the number of heart attacks per capita in the U.S on a website called spurious correlations where like basically you can draw a correlation between very very clearly unrelated things <laughs> i didn't know you could buy write a paper about it though <laughs> no no but the the thing is the, the the reason i like this paper so much is because it actually sits down and does a serious analysis of this it <laughs> it sounds like a joke but it isn't actually only a joke Oh, it isn't actually only... Wait, was this an April 1st paper? No, this is not an April 1st paper. Uh, so it was Fantastic. originally put on archive on July 15th, 2019. And it was published in Physics Letters B uh, oh, wow. in, on April 10th, 2020. 
Oh wow. I'll, I'll have to I'll have to look that one up. For reference, Benjamin, on on Archive, which is the um, the preprint server um, that most people in our field use to, you know, you can put A-R-X-I-V. up a paper there either. A R X I V exactly. Yeah, the yes. Greek letter Chi. Um, so. <laughs> Um, on Archive, uh, what you'll often see is people will put papers up there either when they've just been published or they're just about to be published, and, and it's a good way to get kind of feedback from the community and also share your results. Um, and often you'll see on, on the last day of March or the first day of April, you'll just see a flood of papers that are hilarious. And <laughs> it's basically all of these very, very intelligent people who have developed very complex uh uh, and advanced analytical tools, applying those analytical tools and their intelligence to silly questions like, um, what is the best type of biscuit? Is it a Jaffa cake? That was one paper that was a couple of years ago by um, Dr. Um, Eloise um, Stevens, I, I think. Um, and yeah, there, there are some fun papers out there, but it makes it difficult because if you try to publish a serious paper around, then um, <laughs> things are a little bit uh, tricky and people might know might not know whether you're being serious or not. So I, I will definitely read into this one. I am absolutely going to read it. I have it open and it's ready to go. Once we're done, I'm going to read about dark matter death. Dark matter death. Sounds like a really <laughs> weird brand of coffee that scientists would drink. <laughs> and if anyone else is Which listening really... to it, that's my idea. Copyright. <laughs> Surely there are some dark matter themed... Um, like really boutique brews, um, like really, <laughs> I feel I feel like there's like a, a Guinness style brew that's like dark matter ale. Oh right? yeah, like well, so I had a I had a Austrian stout some years ago that was called Dunkle Matier. <laughs> dark matter. <yes. laughs> no, but I, I'm sure you could find a coffee called dark matter somewhere in Sydney. Definitely, what probably is, somewhere around Glebe near the university. What does that say about Sydney? That it's the best city in Australia. Okay. It's it's definitely <laughs> got a lot of boutique coffee. Well, you, it, maybe Melbourne has gives us a run for his money. This is why I keep telling you, Benjamin, you've got to come down here and uh, we'll do an episode live. That's what the people want. Give the people what they want. I, I am 100% game for that. Hundred percent. I'm just waiting for Elon Musk's boring company to drill a hole through the planet, and I'll just go that way. It's fast. <laughs> Wait for some of that uh, ad money, the sponsorship money, to fly you down. Oh yeah, podcast money. Oh my god, the, the big podcast, <laughs> podcast box. Oh my god, I feel he knew. I feel he knew. I go to sleep very late at night because I'm wasting so much time counting these stacks of podcasts, ad revenue money. Oh, them podcast pennies. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Benjamin, I know that you had a bunch more questions that prior to I have the show, a few more. Um, yeah. You, yeah. I, lay, lay them on us because I can't answer them for you after the show. So you, you got to ask the expert. I on, did on my very show. best to try to do a little you know, I, I, I brushed up on my dark matter and, you know, black hole science studies to prepare for this episode. And because uh, it was the very first time I actually did brush up on that. Uh, 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 um. I have a question about neutrinos. Not all dark matter is made up of neutrinos, but are all neutrinos dark matter? Well, uh, yeah. Yeah. Look at, at least Look at two them. out of three. Two out of three. Uh, Two out of three. (laughs) That means most, which rounds uh, up to yes. (laughs) So uh, neutrinos, uh, they were at one point a good candidate for what dark matter could be. But as I mentioned, there's a few mechanisms that uh, prevent structure formation. So the thing with neutrinos is that uh, it turns out they're very, very light. And uh, this means that they sort of, they're actually also part of this big fluid interacting gas very early on in the universe. And then 
roughly around the times when atomic nuclei are formed, uh, the neutrinos also stop interacting uh, because they're only coupled to the rest of all this stuff through the weak force, one of these uh, four fundamental forces, uh, which is quite weak at low temperatures. And uh, well, since then, they've just been going, uh, more or less. Uh, but because they are, they're very, very light, they are measured in, like they're, they're less than an electron volt, which uh, is, so the electron volts is roughly the energy of an ultraviolet photon or regular pho photon. It's sort of uh, this range. Uh, and electrons are really much lighter than that. So uh, they will be relativistic. That means moving very, very fast uh, as long as their kinetic energy is large compared to their mass energy, which, as mentioned, is quite small. Uh, so they are no longer relativistic today because everything that was emitted back then is now very, very, very cold, uh, like the cosmic microwave background. Uh, the neutrino is actually even colder than that uh, because they were emitted earlier and have some mass, so they lose energy faster. Uh, so they might have started clustering now, but essentially they just keep going uh, and don't clump together until they stop being relativistic, which yeah happens relatively late compared to uh, like th what we need to make galaxies. Uh, which is and, cold dark matter. Uh, well, yes, exactly. Uh, this guy. What? Well, it's uh, fascinating. So neutrinos are what we call hot dark matter because they free stream quite far. Uh, and so one of the things we use these uh, large scale uh, structure experiments to do and uh, that we're hoping to be able to do with this next generation like DESI and uh, other such experiments is actually to measure the impact on structure of neutrinos because on very large scales, so scales longer than the scales in which they uh, free stream, they actually act as dark matter. So they, act a, they contribute to the matter budget. But on scales smaller than that, they won't cluster. So we will see like a slight shift in how much clustering we have depending on the scale. And that can tell us something about how much neutrino is out there. And because we know the p particle physics of how the neutrinos are generated quite well, that can give us uh, a limit on how massive can they be. Uh, which actually the current bounds from cosmology are better than our current best bounds from particle physics experiments here on Earth. Wow, that's wild. That the people who are doing the, st the study of large-scale structure are able to um, put better limits on the size of small things than the people who study small things. <laughs> so, yeah, this is my favorite thing about cosmology. This is why I'm doing cosmology, is because we can use the universe to learn about particle physics. This is, uh, this is what I love. I heard it here first. Folks, he's not in it for the big bucks. He's in it. <laughs> he's <laughs> using the biggest things big to learn more about podcast. the smallest things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay, Benjamin, I feel like you're asking a lot of questions that, that you know the answer to, and you seem to have a good intuition. What was what was something in your research, uh, your preparation for the show that blew your mind that just couldn't wrap your head around? Okay, well, we kind of touched on it because this is all we're talking about anyway. Um, dark matter is categorized into three groups. There's cold dark matter, warm dark matter, and hot dark matter. Yes. But if dark, Ish. if all that dark matter does is it just does gravity. And I know the, we you refer to cold dark matter because it's slower and it's more massive. And we refer to hot dark matter because it's less massive and 
speedy. But is cold, warm, and dark the names given to them just because it's a handy way to refer to them? Or is there an actual connection to temperature as we know it? Well, is so it, there mean, is a certain connection to... Well, it's always going to be cold today. But uh, essentially the idea is uh, how how for how long was the dark matter particle relativistic and uh, if it's cold then we can make the approximation that it essentially was never relativistic uh obviously not true but it was only relativistic for such a short time that it has no impact of structure formation uh hot dark matter uh was like neutrinos or it could also be other exotic particles like axions uh, or uh, well you can make up lots of things if you make up a light <laughs> particle then uh, that is coupled to the thermal bath of the universe uh, so if, if it's an interacting part of the soup in the early universe and it's light then it will be hot uh, so but if it has sort of an intermediate mass uh, in sort of the kV kilo electron volt range so this is about as energetic as an x-ray then what you will uh, find is that it will still free stream for quite a while but it will be able to form structure above this scale uh, which I guess is a extremely wishy-washy way of saying uh, this is not a candidate that has been ruled out yet mm. uh, we are just sort of by being able to probe structures in smaller and smaller scales, we sort of pushing the lower mass limit further and further up. And depending on which observable you're looking at, then uh, the, the lower limit is sort of on the order of a few kV to 10 kV-ish. And again, this is something that this new Lyman Alpha Forest data will help us with uh, even more it, because these are exactly the scales that uh, are relevant to whether or not the dark matter could be warm. I love, I love the language that we're using around this. So not just the fact that we're describing, you know, like the lukewarm dark matter of the universe, but the fact that you said, so we've got, we've got the thermal bath. Um, you said like the soup of electrons. I mean, before you were talking about uh, uh, clumpy, attractive bodies, um, like these terms that we use. Because like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to call you out on it. I'm just saying like we we struggle to find ways to describe in language that we relate to these incredible structures and things that are just so far beyond us. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, like like calling calling the the Lyman Alpha Forest. Um, a forest like it, it makes sense when you look at the spectral lines but otherwise like how else are we meant to conceptualize it um honestly no but th thermal buff i like that one that's that's, that's my uh, phrase of the day <laughs> yeah i messaged coffee on the sign just now like did he just say thermal bath it's like yep I'm like ah oh, so I, I didn't even make that one up this is this is the actual term oh i'm loving it forests and baths <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for bringing it down for me. <laughs> oh man, that's great. I, I feel like we've covered a lot on this episode. Um, I'm sure that our listeners um, will have had many questions that they might've had previously on dark matter and cosmology and, and black holes answered. And there's a chance that you probably have many more questions that have uh, come up uh, as you swam through this cosmic soup uh, during this episode. Um, so if you'd like to uh, uh, find us online, um, Marcus, where, where can the good people find you on the interwebs if they, if they have mm -hmm. more questions or want to follow your research? Well, uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter, uh, which I will refuse to update my naming of, uh, <laughs> at M underscore Mosbeck, M-O-S-B-E-C-H. Uh, that is my name uh and then you can find me on blue sky uh at 
mosbeck, M-O-S-B-E-C-H dot B-S-K-Y dot social. Uh, and uh, I think these are the main places you can find me. You can find me on my university's website <laughs> in the staff directory. There you go. And as usual, uh, you can find me at Fun Fact Science on all of the great time-wasty platforms. Uh, Benjamin, where can the good people find you if they want to hear more about the, uh, the science and nerddom that you're up to these days? Science and nerddom can be found at Science Actually. And that's on all the social media pine wasters. I think I got all these guys beat. I'm on every single one of them. Primarily every on Facebook. Every single one. Pretty much. I'm on all of them. Find me on uh, Facebook primarily, Science Actually. Or you can look at uh, Blue Sky or Threads or TikTok or Hive or Mastodon or LinkedIn or Twitter. Because we're not, I'm also not going to call it X because no one knows what the hell that means. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining I've us heard, today, heard, Marcus. Yeah. No, it was a pleasure. Uh, if you have any more burning questions, I'm happy to join again at some point. Oh, what if there are only warm polite. questions? Well, you <laughs> or, can, uh, well, yeah. I, I answer any questions from uh, relativistic to cold. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's quite the Love it. broad Love range. It. All right. Marcus, thank you so much. Thank you. Apologies for my dumbfounded Thanks look, for being but here. I was trying to learn. <laughs> no, it's all good. <laughs> Only way to do it. And thank you at home uh, or in the car or on the train or wherever you happen to be listening to this episode. This has been another episode of Science Actually Presents The Nerd and the Scientist. We will see you next time. The natural world is changing and we are totally dependent on that world. It provides our food, water, and air. It is the most precious thing we have, and we need to defend it. It has given us such splendor and diversity and all the vibrant rhythms by which we orchestrate our lives. And it also gave us Carvey and Benjamin, so, you know, sometimes it makes mistakes too.